Blog Talk Radio. Well, folks, it's another rainy day here in sunny Florida. I guess that's kind of an oxymoron, but we've been getting a lot of rain here today. Well, welcome, and uh, it is another Wednesday. It is 6 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, and today I've decided we're going to talk a little bit more about stone and tile failures. We'll get into the type of failures and all of that, Uh, but before, let me make a couple of announcements. This Saturday, uh, this is your last chance, this Saturday I am doing a webinar uh, which is easy to attend on your on your computer uh, on historic preservation, uh, particularly as it considers uh, stone and tile. So if anyone is interested in signing up for that historic preservation seminar, uh, it's going to be a great seminar. It's a seven-hour seminar. Um, you don't have to attend the entire seven hours because it will be recorded, and you can listen into it later. So if you've got other things to do, at least maybe you can get in on the, the first hour or two of it. Uh, send me an email at fhouston at gmail.com. That's F H U E S. T-O-N at gmail.com, and I'll tell you a little bit more about that. I'll send you some more information if you're interested in that historic stone preservation seminar. Uh, The other seminar I'm going to be doing, again, is going to be in Las Vegas, January 21st through the 24th, and that's my stone inspection and troubleshooting seminar. Uh, Again, I limit that to the number of people. We'll probably have a maximum of eight people, and I rarely fill it up to to eight. So uh, I like the small classes, get more one-on-one attention. If you're a fabricator, a restoration contractor, an installer, an architect, engineer, or you're just plain interested in more troubleshooting of both stone and tile. This is a pretty intensive seminar. It's a fun seminar, a uh, lot of good information. I guarantee you'll come out of it uh, learning learning something. So if you're interested in that, again, also send me an email at fhouston at gmail.com. Uh, you can also call me on my cell, which is 321 321- Five one four six eight four five, and again, I'll get you some more information on that as 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 well. Uh, also, the phone number for today, if you're listening live, is three two three eight seven zero three nine six eight. That's three two three eight seven zero three nine six eight, and I'll be more than happy to take your call if you have a question, or you want to share a story. Uh, whatever the case may be, uh, just simply go pick up the phone and call in. Again, you can send me an email at that email address. I'll give it to you one more time. That's fhouston, F-H-U-E-S-T-O-N at gmail.com. You can message me on uh, Facebook Messenger. Just search for Stone Forensics and go to my Messenger there. And uh, I have that open on my other other computer here, so I'll be able to uh, see what your question is if you're a little shy about being uh, on the radio. Well, hopefully uh, those listening, uh, those of you listening have gone back and listened to the previous, I believe it's four or five shows where we talked about anti-etch products. So some great shows, had some great interviews with the manufacturers, as well as a, a, I guess you would call it a summary 
uh, last week with David Bonacera, who talked about uh, the tests he has done on all those. So uh, definitely go back and take a look. We're going to switch gears a little bit now. I think we've kind of beat the horse to death when it comes to the anti-etch products. And uh, we're going to talk a little bit more uh, today about failures. And this is some of the stuff that we also cover in that stone inspection and troubleshooting seminar in Las Vegas next year. So uh, if you want a little bit of a teaser, this is a great show to listen to. First thing I want to talk about is the type of failures that we see. And I've, I've categorized these into about, I don't know, seven or eight different categories. And we'll kind of go through each and every one of these as time permits. The first one is bonding failures. Uh, the second one is types of cracking. Uh, the third is substrates, uh, whether it's on a concrete or a wood substrate. Uh, the fourth, of course, is moisture-related uh, failures. Chemical failures, five. Physical failures, a six. Surface failures. And then staining I have listed as a, as a last failure uh, might not really be considered a failure per se. You know, if we go back and we define, you know, when we look at, you know, what is a failure, and it doesn't mean getting an F in my course, uh, it's basically a state of an inability to perform a normal function adequately. So in other words, if we, we set a tile on a floor and it doesn't stay there, it cracks, it comes up, it becomes debonded, that's, that's a failure. Uh, if the surface is somehow uh, compromised, that's also a failure. So that's basically what, it, what a failure is. Now, as you can imagine, the past 40 some years that I've been involved in this industry, I have seen tons and tons of failures. And, you know, let me clarify a little bit about failures is failures are not just for inspectors. Um, it's extremely important if you're a restoration contractor, for example, to be able to determine whether you have a bonding failure or not. Now, why is that important? Well, let's suppose, let's take an example. You go into, it can be a home, it can be a commercial setting, and you're ready to uh, do some work on this floor. And let's say you have to remove lippage. So if you've got to remove lippage, you're probably going to get pretty aggressive. Well, if you haven't checked that floor, if you haven't sound that floor and checked it for bonding, and we'll talk about how to do that here in a minute, um, you could end up in a lot of trouble. And I've seen that. I've had calls from contractors that said, Fred, you know, I went in and I restored this floor. I ground all the lippage off. Uh, I cracked a few tiles. And, eh, you know, we're able to get away with that. But the customer called me back you know, a week later or whatever, and we've got cracked tiles all over the place. It's because the floor was not installed properly. There was a bonding failure there, and you failed to uh, see what that is. So extremely important. Uh, for you fabricators out there, failures are, on, are important on your countertops. Uh, I can't tell you how many times I've seen failures from something, you know, the biggest problem I'm seeing right now is this blue-green bloom that we see, which is from the use of CA glues and mainly the accelerator. And if you have a specific question on that, I'd be more than happy uh, to answer that question. But I, I hadn't hadn't considered actually doing that, answering that question here in this presentation. But if you have that question, hey, go ahead and give us a call. I'll be more than happy to uh, entertain that question as well. So, uh, you know, fabricators are going to have failures when it comes to installation faults, not installing the countertop properly. Uh, failures with, you know, the, the ultimate, is it a crack or is it a fissure? And I think I may have talked about that on one of the other shows, and that's a big problem I get all the time. You know, a lot of fabricators will say that's not a crack, that's a fissure. There are ways to tell whether that's a fissure or that's a crack, and that's, again, some of the things we go over uh, in, our, in, our, uh, in our class as well. Uh, if you're an architect, uh, if you're a designer, if you're a specifier, uh, very important to be able to specify um, 
these fail or, or at least know what the failures are. So when you're doing your specification, you're not just going to some spec sheet somewhere and just copying it. And I can't tell you how many times I've run into that issue where, you know, not all the specs out there are, uh, how should I say this? A hundred percent accurate. Uh, a lot of them are wrong. Um, I, I got a call, I think it was last week and, uh, someone had mentioned that, uh, and well, what the heck, this is internet radio. I'll go ahead and say it that Martha Stewart recommends using lemon and salt to remove an etch. Now, this is what she's recommending the consumer do. Well, I don't need to tell you pros out there what lemon is going to do to a, a, a countertop. Uh, I can just envision that being a total nightmare where the customer goes in and places a lemon on the countertop, adds a little salt, tries to rub the etch out, sets the lemon aside, and it sits there and creates another etch. So uh, those are that, that's some of the misinformation that's out there on the Internet. And, you know, one thing I want to make, make everyone clear of what I do on this radio show was that I also do in my seminars as well is – I tell it like it is. Uh, if it's my opinion, I'm going to tell you this is my opinion. If it's a fact, uh, I will tell you that it, this is a, most of it's going to be. You know, this this is a fact. Uh, uh, that's just the way I, I operate. So, with that said, let's get into uh, some of the failures. The first failure that I'd like to talk about, and this is. Uh, Again, if you installers are listening and you are installing with this particular method, you know, take your hand out, take your other hand and smack yourself because it shouldn't be done. And that's what we call the five dot method. You will hear it called the dab method, um, you know, various other terms, blob method. Well, I've heard it called a number of different things. But basically, for those of you unfamiliar with that, that's where you're setting a tile. And instead of using a full mortar bed with a notch trowel, you're just putting dots on the floor. Now. That causes several problems. First of all, it causes voids uh, between the tile, which can lead to cracking. Because nine times out of ten, when you're using a dot method, you're going to miss the very corners of the tile. And, and when I'm saying tile, it can be a small mosaic tile or it can be, you know, a four foot by four foot tile. So when I say tile, that's what we're talking about. And, and this applies to both stone and it applies to uh, a tile, ceramic, porcelain, uh, glass as well. Uh, it's not an accepted method. If you go to the, the NTCA's manual, uh, you will see it's not. There's all kinds of information on the Internet about this particular method. And to this day, I'm astonished at how many times I come across this. I will go into a project. I will take a tile up. Uh, first, I'll sound it. Uh, by sounding it, I mean uh, – well, let me tell you how we, how we check for that uh, bonding. Let me stop there. I use a technique which is called sounding. Uh, this technique has been around for a long time in the concrete industry. That's where you drag a chain across concrete and you listen for hollow areas. Well, I don't use a chain for primarily because I, you know, sometimes I might be a little concerned with scratching the material. Also, I don't like using a chain because you can't pinpoint where the hollow areas are. So the best thing to use, at least what I have found that works the best, is a golf ball. Uh, just take a golf ball, I don't care what kind of golf ball you use, and simply bounce it on the floor, and you'll be able to hear the difference between the hollow spots and the non-hollow spots. Now, let me back up again a little bit and warn you about listening for hollow spots. There are a lot of 
reasons why a tile can sound hollow when it really is not hollow. In other words, when the setting bed has a void in it, it could be acoustics. It could be, you know, you'll see that a lot when you, you tap a golf ball across an area and then the ceiling height changes. You'll hear a different type of sound. So you want to be able to also look up to be able to tell, okay, am I hearing this sound? Is this sound different over here because of acoustics? Not necessarily, you know, with uh, a, a hollow in the tile tile itself. Uh, the substrate, uh, the type of substrate you have can be an issue. Uh, I remember a, a project I did in the Cayman Islands a number of years ago where I was tapping the floor and I was finding some finding some hollow areas. And I went over to this one section and I started tapping and the whole thing sounded hollow. So, you know, right away you're saying, oh, well, this particular area was just, you know, set improperly. Well, no, what had happened is that the area that I had originally was tapping was on a concrete substrate. The area that I went over to tap where I found this particular hollow area, so-called hollow area, was a wood substrate. So you, you end up developing a good ear for that. Now, where it becomes a problem is proving that you have a hollow, you know, you can say, well, I do the sounding test. The sounding test is a test that everyone uses and it indicates hollows. I mean, that's all fine and dandy, but if you took that to a court of law, which I do a lot of expert witness work in, um, they're going to say, well, how can you definitively prove that you have hollow spots in this tile? Well, very easily you do a destructive test. There is one other way, but a destructive test is a surefire way. You pull a tile up and again, nine times out of 10, these tiles come up very easily uh, and you can just, you know, there it is. Uh, that's what, you know, there's your dots. Uh, that's not an acceptable standard industry practice. The, another way you can do it, and I've, I've discussed this on other shows, but I'll discuss it again here is by using an infrared camera. If you go ahead and take a hairdryer heat gun and just, you know, for a couple of seconds, just heat that tile up and then take your, your infrared camera and look through the infrared camera or even snap a picture of it, you can see there are going to be certain areas that are cool, certain areas that are, that are hot, and they're going to show up on your infrared camera. So if there's a dot method, you will, you will see the dots. You will see exactly where the voids are, and that's, that's kind of undisputed. I mean, how do you say, you know, that's not, not what it is? So uh, that, that's another way to do it. And I actually, you, you don't have to go out and spend $20,000 on an infrared camera. There are cheaper ones out there. FLIR, F-L-I-R, makes one that I use that I paid, I think, three or $400 for that fits right on my camp, right on my telephone. Uh, they make them for both the Androids and, and the iPhone. So that's, that's one way. Another problem you end up with when it comes to, and this could be with a full mortar bed or with a dot, but I tend to see this a lot with the dot method is um, the, the wrong type of mortar is being used. And, and that's, that's a big issue. Um, you'll pop the tile up, you'll see the dot method, but there won't be any, any mortar on the back of the tiles. Uh, and if you find out and you go, go ahead and ask, well, you know, what kind of mortar do they use? And you find out again, I hate to keep using the nine times out of 10, uh, analogy, but it's true. Nine times out of 10, they've used the wrong setting mortar. You have to remember a lot of materials that we're using nowadays is either resin backed, uh, has fiberglass back on it, uh, is treated in some way on the back of that tile and standard thin sets, even the latex modified thin sets will not always bond correctly. Now, what's interesting is if you go to, you know, some of the, and I've done this, you've gone to some of the thin sets and you actually look on the, on the bag and you look under the section that, that says limitations, it will say right on there, 
not intended for either say fiberglass or it'll say resin. Now keep in mind, when I say fiberglass backing, they attach the fiberglass with what? They attach it with resin. So it might not say fiberglass, it may say resin, same thing, okay? It's a, it's a bonding issue. And uh, it's probably the number number one failure that I'm seeing today is, is these bonding issues, you know, along with the five dot and also without the five dot method. You know, you installers out there, make sure you read the label, make sure you're buying the proper thin set, you know, whether you're using custom, the pay, uh, Laticre, you know, whomever, just make sure you're using that particular material. Now, not only in stone, but we're also seeing this in porcelain. Uh, again, porcelain, especially the better grade of porcelains, are, are have a very low absorption. So they're not going to, you know, exchange water very well. So you end up with the same type of issue. Where I've seen it even more so than stone, than porcelain, is with glass tile. That's right. Glass tile is becoming very, very popular. Uh, it's, there's all kinds of glass tiles out there. I've seen tiles as big as four foot by four foot and hotel lobbies with absolutely zero bond to them. I mean, zero bond. So uh, you want to be careful. Look, make sure you read the labels. All right, if you uh, have a question here, I'm going to give out the phone number as I go through uh, some of these failures here. The number is 323-870-3968. That's 323-870-3968. And even if you have a story uh, to share with these bonding issues, uh, it's, uh, some of these issues can be quite interesting. They can also be quite dangerous. I've had showers that tiles were actually falling off the floor, off the floor, off the wall, I'm sorry, uh, off the wall, hitting people um, and possibly injuring, injuring someone. So, you know, extremely important. Now, don't get me started on exterior failures. That's a whole nother class. And actually, we talk about that in my historic preservation class that I'm doing this Saturday. Um, and that is, uh, you know, with exterior cladding especially but even exterior tiles you know your building codes dictate that a lot of times those tiles have to be mechanically set they have to have some kind of mechanical anchor but that that's all i'll say uh, about that for right now all right the next failure i'd like to discuss is moisture issues and it used to be the number one problem now i'm I'm kind of shifting that to be the number two problem because at least with the failures that I'm seeing right now, I'm seeing a ton of these bonding issues, but uh, moisture issues are another problem. Um, you end up with iron oxidation, uh, which is what happens with a lot of stone, particularly with white Carrera when it gets, you know, a lot of moisture in there. It's the minerals in there, the iron in there starts to rust. And you end up with uh, oxidation of the iron. A lot of times, it's very, very difficult uh, to remove that iron. I've had, I've had success with it, and I've had some failures. Uh, with, with, what I mean by failures, with failures, and it, you can't remove it. Um, so it, it's very, uh, it, it's, it's, it can be difficult. Now, when it comes to moisture, there's several ways to check for moisture in a stone. And when I say moisture, Here's the problem a lot of guys run into is they use a moisture meter. Now, I'm not saying a moisture meter is bad. It's a good thing. It's going to give you what we call a relative reading. In other words, you can take a moisture meter, you can place it on the stone, the tile, or whatever, and it's going to give you a reading. It's not going to give you a percentage. 
You're not going to get that this stone has 10% moisture. You're not going to get that it has 50% moisture or even 100% moisture. That reading is relative. And now, what do I mean by relative? I mean, the moisture meter is going to tell you whether the stone is dry, whether eh, it's a little wet, or whether it's soaking wet as it sits right there, right as you're taking that reading. It's an instantaneous reading because what you don't know is you don't know how much vapor is coming out of that, that, that particular, if it's a slab, but out of that installation. Uh, you don't know if someone just spilled something on the, on the floor. Uh, you don't know if someone just took a shower, if you're taking a moisture reading in a, in a shower, or how long it's been wet. Uh, you know, you can't look at a stone and tell what the absorption rate of that particular material is. So, a moisture meter is a good diagnostic tool, but keep in mind it's only a relative reading. If you want to get a surefire um, reading as far as the relative humidity or the vapor coming out of that stone, you need to use one of two tests. You either need to use what is called the calcium chloride test, sometimes called the dome test, or you can use uh, what they call the RH test. Now, I'll describe each one of these in a little bit of detail, but you can simply go to the web and uh, you know go to Google, search in, search those words I just mentioned, and you, you'll get all the kind of tests out there. But and, and right now, you know, you, you get this argument, you know, which one is more accurate? And my opinion there, without getting into too much of the politics of it, is that uh, it doesn't matter. Uh, if you do the vapor emission test with the calcium chloride test and you get a high reading, you got a problem. If you do the RH test and you get a high relative meeting, relative, you've got a problem. So regardless of which test you use, you have a problem. So let me describe each one. Let me describe the easiest one first, and that's the RH test, uh, relative humidity test. Um, basically, this is a ASTM F2170-02, uh, which is the, a, uh, the relative humidity test, uh, the probes are made by Wagner and a few others, but basically you drill a hole into the concrete substrate. It's designed primarily for concrete substrate. You put these little probes in there. There's a whole procedure for it. You put these little probes in there. You let them sit for a given period of time, and you go back with a meter, and you measure it, and it gives you what your relative humidity is. In other words, that's what the moisture is coming out of the slab. The calcium chloride test works a little bit differently in that what it does is it uses calcium chloride. It's, it's, a, it's a mineral that is used that's very absorbent, what we call in science is hydroscopic, and you place that under a dome, and there's a whole procedure for doing this as well, and uh, over you know, a 68 to 72-hour period, and you weigh the calcium chloride before, you weigh it after. Of course, if it absorbs any kind of moisture, there's going to be a difference in weight, and there's a calculation that you can determine how much pounds of moisture you're getting uh, through that installation. All extremely important. If it were up to me, I would, well, I still do do this, but if it were up to me, I would make sure that every single installation that occurs out there over a concrete slab have one or two of those tests done uh, because you're going to end up with all kinds of failures, not only with moisture causing problems with uh, iron oxidation, but if you're dealing with epoxy terrazos, you get a bubbling effect that occurs, uh, resin back material. So you can end up with all kinds of issues uh, when it comes to moisture uh, in the slab, efflorescence, subfluorescence, uh, all those things uh, are extremely detrimental to, to the installation. And, you know, installers and see me show up with my bag of tricks, you know, my moisture meters, my, my test kits, my infrared camera and everything. They start freaking out and trying to defend their, their installation. But 
if they would just simply, you know, take these precautions and make sure that they're doing it properly, you wouldn't have that particular problem. So, you know, I guess the thing I'm trying to say is please don't cut corners. All right. That, so, and I, there's a whole lecture I give on, on, uh, on, you know, hydrostatic pressure versus capillary action versus osmotic pressure. And again, I don't have enough time to go into that. I leave that more into, uh, into my inspection class. All right. Another type of failure that we see, and I've kind of hinted on this uh, somewhat when it came to the resin back materials, and that's bonding failures. And you have three different types of bonding failures, at least the way I classify them. The one is the tile or the stone to the setting bed itself. In other words, whether it's a thin set, a thick bed installation, an epoxy, that, that, that interface right there. Then you have from the setting bed, in other words, your thin set, your medium mud bed, whatever, to the substrate itself. And then you, the third one you have is where you have bonding failure in both areas, both from the tile to the setting bed and from the setting bed to the substrate. So, you know, it, it's very important uh, to look at those particular, um, um, you know, where that, where that bonding failure is, is occurring. Um, Bonding failures are pretty self-explanatory when it comes to, is there a bonding failure? As I said, you can, you know, pull a tile up and you can see there's no, you know, material on the back of the tile or adhering to the, to the substrate. Well, the bond has failed for whatever, whatever reason. That's where it gets a little trickier is determining, you know, where does that bond fail? So let, let's discuss a little bit, uh, a little bit about that or, you know, where the bonds fail. Uh, but you know what, before I do, let me go ahead and give you all the telephone number one more time here. If you're listening uh, live three, two, three, eight, seven, zero, three, nine, six, eight, three, two, three, eight, seven, zero, three, nine, six, eight. If you have something to contribute or a story to tell, or even uh, a question concerning, you know, anything that we're talking uh, about uh, today now. All right. So, what can cause bonding failures? You know, what are some of the things that, that happens uh, to bonds? Well, you have poor substrate preparation. And I've seen this over and over again. Something as simple as just dust settling on the slab and not properly removing that dust can cause a bonding issue. It can cause a, bo a bonding failure. So all kinds of contaminants. Now, let's suppose you have a... a a slab, it looks good, it's cleaned, you've scarified it, you've maybe even acid washed it, and you still have a bonding issue. What you need to check for is what we call curing compounds. A lot of contractors, a lot of guys that, that pour slabs today are using curing compounds. And a lot of times what these curing compounds do is they seal the surface of the... So what's the scientific test? We're determining what you're curing. If there's a curing compound at all, it's very scientific. You take some water and you place it on the concrete. If the water soaks in, in other words, it'll darken up, it's okay. If it sits there and doesn't go in or, you know, God forbid, it beads on the surface, you have, a, you have something on that surface and it's more than likely uh, a curing compound that's on there. Uh, I've seen carpet glues. I, I looked at one installation and, you know, many years ago in a department store that uh, the installers went in there and actually did not remove the carpet glue and tried to set these 12 by 12 marble tiles directly on the carpet glue. And guess what? It didn't bond. Okay. So you, you want to look at that. Um, and 
inadequate mixing of your setting mortar. I've seen this where people would use the wrong uh, wrong drill, for example. Using a standard high-speed drill is going to entrain a lot of air into your into your setting mortar. So, you know, not mixing it properly, regardless of the type of setting mortar and method you're using. It can be a problem with epoxy. It can be a problem with mud. It can be a problem with thin set. Uh, another bonding issue would be your setting mortar not properly mixed or an incorrect blend of mortar. This is especially true uh, with your mud beds where, you know, the ratio of sand to uh, to, to cement is, you know, your Portland cement is, is, is off. That can be an issue. Incompatibilities with, with the substrate. Uh, this can be a problem, especially with fracture membranes, uh, isolation membranes, uh, waterproofing membranes, where you know you have to read the manufacturer's recommendation when it comes to uh, comes to this. You know, many of you listening are familiar with the Schluter issue, as to you know do, with the Detramat, do you use a mod bonded versus a modified versus unmodified material? So that's something you really need to ask, and you need to really research, and you really need to uh, to look into. And then you can have what we call flash setting, and this can happen due to a hot substrate. In other words, you know, if you're in a climate like here in Florida, Southern California, you know, all through the southeast and, and southwest, if you have a very, very hot substrate and you try to set material on top of that, it'll actually absorb and suck all the moisture away. Uh, so that that can that can be that can be a real issue and a real bonding problem. Uh, failure to clean the back of your tile. Uh, can be an issue again. Not only on the slab can dust be an issue, but the back of the tile can be an issue. And nowadays, I'm seeing some tile manufacturers and and, and stone tile also where they actually put a coating on the back of the of the stone, and that can cause a bonding bonding problem. As a matter of fact, it reminds me of an installer I had an argument with not too long ago that said uh, uh, he avoids all these problems by sealing the back of his stone uh, with an impregnator with a stone impregnator. Well, folks. That doesn't work because that basically does the same thing that a resin does, is it, is it prevents water from exchanging between the between the back of the tile, and you're going to have a failure if you do that. Uh, allowing the setting bed to skin over can also be an issue on the, you know partially curing uh, of the of the setting bed before you actually set the tile. Uh, I mentioned pre-sealing. Uh, not well, you'll you'll hear this terminology a lot. The tile has not been beat in properly. Uh, in the old days, you used to take a rubber mallet and actually tap the tile to beat it in. Now, what the NTCA recommends is, you know, you take your trowel marks, you place your tile down, and you move the tile perpendicular to those, which closes up those those uh, channels in there. And it's actually a really good video. Uh, if you go to YouTube and just type in trowel and error, trowel and error, you'll see that video. And it's a really good video. They do it with a piece of, with a glass tile. So it's, 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 uh, it's, it's really cool what they, what they do there with that to show how it, you can end up with issues with it. Extreme temperature differentials. Uh, I've seen this, and especially in cold climates where, you know, all the setting materials, the tile and everything are sitting outside in the cold, you know, it's, below 32 degrees Fahrenheit out there and inside where they're working is nice and warm and you bring that material and you start setting it right away. I always recommend that. And, ex and that could also apply to, you know, the opposite, uh, a very hot, humid environment and then bring it into an air conditioned space. I always recommend that you bring the setting material in and the, the tile that you're setting in at least 24 hours, if not longer, uh, and let it acclimate to the same temperature conditions because you can end up with a, with a failure there as wetting. Well, uh, too much or too little water mixed in the, the material itself can cause a bonding failure. Now, 
I will get this all the time from insurance companies when it comes to bonding failures or, you know, hollow spots, so to speak. And that is we had a flood, you know, a heater, a water heater broke and it flooded, um, window broke, rain came in, hurricane, no matter how that particular floor got flooded and now the floor is hollow, impossible. If you go back and study how concrete cures, okay, what's setting mortar? Setting mortar is concrete base. It's Portland cement mixed with additives or whatever. It's, it's what we call hydroscopic. It will, it will set underwater. So water, unless it's brand new, unless it's fresh, water is not going to wash it away. Water itself is not going to cause it to debond. If you get that call and they claim the flood debonded the tile, it's BS. It didn't happen. Okay, uh, it's it's it was always that way, and now they're using the the bonding issue uh, as, as an excuse. Very very common problem. Uh, I've seen soft and crumbling setting mortar, uh, swelling of, of setting mortar. I've seen uh, some installers for why I don't know why they would do this use perlite in their setting mix, and of course that will swell. Um, on plywood substrates, I've seen shrinkage of the plywood, the wrong type of plywood use, uh, not taping your, uh, your cement board if you're using that, uh, lack of curing time. In other words, the tiles walked on right away can cause, cause a problem. Uh, we already talked about rapid drying, but we didn't talk about if, if you have a very absorbent stone. This is especially true with thinset. Remember, your thinset material is what? It's thin. It usually has a fairly low water content because of all the additives. Now you take an extremely dry tile and you place it on your setting, setting mortar, what will happen immediately is going to want to suck up all that moisture. And I've seen failures because tile wasn't pre-wetted. In the old days, we used to soak our tiles. You know, we, we would take, you know, whether it was, uh, you know, saltillo, Mexican tile or, or stone tile, you would stick it in a bucket of water. You'd let it soak up some water. And then set it. That way you know you have a slow drying and any even exchange. That's the preferred method. I, I can't tell you one installer that I've seen over the years that actually does that. It takes too much time. Uh, overmixing of the setting material with a high-speed drill. I had mentioned that. And then uh, uh, dilution of additives. And this is a project uh, I saw on, on a very, very large project where the installer insisted they use the latex additive in their setting material. But... It's, we still had a bonding failure. So, you know, you would think, okay, uh, they, they used a, 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 a latex additive in their setting mortar. Why did it fail? Was it any of these other things that I mentioned a minute ago? Well, what I discovered is that they took the additive, they added a cup of additive to their setting mortar and then added water. Read your direction, people. Uh, the directions say do not add, well, not all of them, but a lot of them will say do not add water. Okay, use this material 100%. So just because you used it doesn't mean you've used it correctly. And, and a lot of times these bonding failures in almost every single case is a result of poor setting techniques uh, and installation failure. Uh, I've rarely have, but I've rarely, 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 rarely have seen a product failure when it comes to these setting mortars. Um, I can think maybe in my entire career, I may have seen one case where we had a product failure. Uh, so it's, it's rare. And that product failure, by the way, was with an epoxy, uh, a type of epoxy. It wasn't a Portland cement, cement material. 
All right, folks, the phone number here again, 323-870-3968. If you have a comment, a question, a story, or just want to say hi, uh, my email, fhuston at gmail.com. That's F-H-U-E-S-T-O-N at gmail.com if you want to send me a, a quick uh, email, even after the show. If you have a question, we can use it at some other show, and obviously I'll answer it directly uh, via the email as well. And that's what I do. I try to try to solve problems or at least attempt to solve the problems. Uh, and if I don't know the answer, I will certainly try to find the answer for you. So uh, that's the interesting thing about the stone and tile um, the forensic area is that uh, it gets some very strange things. And I think I actually did an entire show a few weeks back uh, on some of the strange things that, that we find. So uh, definitely uh, uh, check that out. Okay, let's go ahead and, and move on to another failure that I see. And that is lack of movement joints. Um, and this, I, I just can't believe, this is where if we have an architect, a designer listening, listen carefully. All installations need to have movement joints. Now, there are different types of movement joints. We have expansion joints, we have construction joints, we have column joints, we have perimeter joints. So you can have a, you know, let's say you had a small, you know, 10 by 10 room, I wouldn't expect to see an expansion joint in the middle of that floor, but you do want to see perimeter joints. In other words, you know, you have to have a gap along the perimeter because guess what? Things contract and expand. And when they do, and you don't give them room to do that, they're going to crack, they're going to lift. Uh, what will happen with certain tiles is they'll actually tent on you. Uh, that can be a problem. So, you know, there there is guidelines in the NTCA manual that talks about expansion joints, where to place them. Uh, expansion joints or any of these movement joints can be an issue because if you bridge them, in other words, uh, an installer goes in and they you know, put their thin set or the mud bed over the, the joint and then install their tile directly over the joint. When that joint does move, which by the way, that's what it's designed to do, it's designed to move, it's going to telegraph up into the setting bed and into the stone and it's going to, and it's going to crack. So, Movement joints are, are important. In, in commercial settings, we usually recommend anywhere between 20 and 25 feet in each direction uh, for interior, exterior, somewhere between 8 and 12. Uh, if you get an area that has a lot of sunlight, interior sunlight, again, 8 to 12 and above ground slabs. You know, we look at about, you know, 8, eight, eight to 12 there as well. Uh, so uh, extremely, extremely important uh, for movement joints. Uh, Schluter makes a, a ton of different, mem um, you know, joint materials, and so does some of some of the other uh, materials as well. I wish I had time to get into membrane types, uh, but I don't. Uh, maybe I'll save that for another uh, another uh, another radio session. But I've, I'm pretty much out of time here. Um, that my folks gives you an idea of some of the things that we cover uh, in our stone inspection and troubleshooting class. Again, if you're interested, it's coming up January 21st through the 24th in Las Vegas. It's the same time, actually slightly before and then during uh, the, the stone show out there, stone and tile show out there. So if, uh, and I give you time to go to that show. So you won't, your, your time won't be used up in my class. Uh, we actually go on a live inspection 
Uh, we actually go on several where we actually look at failures, uh, a lot of failures in the Las Vegas area. So um, uh, it's, it's, it's a great, uh, great uh, place, outdoor classroom or hands-on classroom as well. So um, again, I limit the number of students. So if you want to sign up, go ahead and send me an email for more information, which is F Houston at gmail.com. That's F-H-U-E-S-T-O-N at gmail.com. Or again, give me a call, 321-514-6845. And I'm about talked out for this week. I will see everybody next week. In the meantime, everyone have a great weekend and, and enjoy the weather wherever you are, good or bad.